I want to talk about slavery and freedom this morning in terms that may be unfamiliar to some of you. Most Americans think of freedom as a legal thing. They think, I ought to be free to do anything that I want to as long as I don't hurt anybody else. You've heard that one before, haven't you? Uh, that's an idea that's worth a sermon all by itself. I don't have the time to do that this morning. But just let me say, you can't build a good country that way. And it's no good for you as an individual either. C.S. Lewis once said, the lost will enjoy forever the terrible freedom that they have demanded. In contrast, a biblical view of freedom seems not to make sense. It seems counterintuitive at best. Augustine, leader of the church 1,600 years ago, uh, said that perfect freedom is found only in service to God. He said, indeed, his service is perfect freedom. And our hearts hear that. And more often than not, they rebel. We say, eh, that's not what freedom means. You, know, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Slavery feels the same way. We are most Americans, we think of slavery in terms of race and property. We are embarrassed by the fact that slavery was once illegal in this country, rightly embarrassed by it, and we rejoice at the fact that that's not true anymore. We say, we are a free people. None of us are slaves. Again, the Scriptures say, this is not so. Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul writes, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? According to the Scriptures, all of us are slaves, either to God or to something else. And you may ask, okay, now, this makes no sense to me. How could this possibly be so? It's actually fairly simple in the end. Everybody lives for something. Every one of us has something that we turn to to make us feel significant, to make us feel like we matter. And it can be all sorts of wonderful things. It may be achievement. It may be power, family, influence, human approval. You may live in order to have people depend on you, or you can live to have people that you can depend on. It can be a political cause. It can be money, romance, good looks. It can quite literally be anything. And whatever it is, it's your spiritual master. You think it's doing something for you, and it probably is, but it's controlling you, too. Like the old Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. We've been looking at the gospel according to Mark, and here in chapter 14, he gives us two living breathing examples of what I'm talking about. One of slavery, 
the other freedom. Listen, please, as Allison reads it for us. The reading this morning is from Mark chapter 14, verse 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts and minds would be acceptable to you now. Please, I pray, pour out your Holy Spirit on us as we consider your word and teach us in it what it means to be free in Christ. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> what do you know about Judas? <clears throat> Look in verse 10. The first thing that Mark points out to us about Judas is that he was one of the twelve. Do you ever get asked the question in a class sometime, if you could have dinner with one great historical figure, anybody who ever lived, who would you choose, right? And of course, how you answer the question depends upon where you are when it is asked. If you're asked that question in school, you say, well, Abraham Lincoln, or William Shakespeare, or Johann Sebastian Bach, some great political or literary or artistic figure. Of course, if you are asked the question in church, the answer is Jesus. Because you ask any question in church, the answer is Jesus. It's like the little boy whose Sunday school teacher asked him, what's gray, has a long furry tail, and lives up in the trees? And he says, well, I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. For a moment, think about what being one of the 12 would have meant for Judas. For years, he had most of his meals with Jesus. He had an access to Jesus physically and verbally that you and I can only dream about. And yet... He betrayed him. In the first century, 30 pieces of silver was the price of human life. You could, quite literally, buy a slave for 30 pieces of silver, but only the cheapest bargain bin kind of slave. 
That's what Judas sold Christ for. And the question that I want to understand this morning is why? What motivated him to betray Jesus? The answer that I'm going to suggest to you this morning is something that not only motivates him, but it motivates us too. The tendency to look at the world, all of it, whether your work or your relationships or your faith in God, with one question in mind, what's in it for me? Do you see it in yourself? This fascinating article appeared in the New York Magazine in 2007. It's entitled, Can't Get No Satisfaction. In a culture where work can be a religion, burnout is a crisis of faith. Any of you ever experience burnout? The writer of this article describes burnout as feeling like an empty teapot over a high flame. You ever feel like that? According to the author, the usual suspects for burnout, you know, high-octane workers, lawyers, doctors, financial people, are not the ones who experience it most often. The ones who experience most often are the ones in the caring professions, social workers, teachers, nurses, ministers. <laughs> and when the author is asked, he asks a therapist why this is so, he gets this answer. The therapist says, my answer is not any different for a banker than it would be for a public school teacher. You see, there's a gulf between what they expected from their jobs and what they got. I can't tell you, he says, how many people come into my office and ask, how come I have this money and I can't find happiness? So what does he tell them? That happiness equals reality divided by expectation. You know how that works. The greater the gap between your expectations and reality, the more likely you're to feel burned out. You see it in Judas? Any of you old enough to remember Tim Rice's old rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, 1970? It actually should have been entitled Judas instead of Jesus Christ Superstar because Judas is really the main character in the opera. The opera begins with a solo by Judas, this song. My mind is clearer now. At last, all too well, I can see where we all soon will be. If you strip away the myth from the man, you will see where we all soon will be. Jesus You've started to believe the things they say of you. You really do believe this talk of God is true. And all the good you've done will soon get swept away. You've begun to matter more than the things you say. You see Judas's burnout here? He expected Jesus to be a social reformer, somebody who would change the world, somebody who would feed the poor here in verse 5, maybe get rid of the Romans. But when he got a Savior instead, his expectations burned him out. You see it?
Do you see it in yourself? What Judas did is something that we all do in our relationships, in our work, and especially in our faith. The first question we ask is, what's in it for me? I'll believe if my life is what I want it to be. I'll believe if I get to define my own life, I get health, I get money, I get someone to love me. If we want God, when we want God to be the means to another end, whatever that other end is, that's your God. It's your idol. It's your master. The Bible calls this sin, and it will destroy you just as surely as it destroyed Judas. Now, look at the woman in this story. What do you know about her? First of all, notice that Mark doesn't even mention her name here. In the Gospel according to John, John identifies her as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. You know the story. Judas was the ultimate insider. Mary was a good friend. While Judas is calculating what's in this for me, what's Jesus worth to me, the woman gives up all she has of value to Jesus. Look in verse 3. The woman, we're told, had an alabaster flask filled with pure nard. Nard evidently was used in, to make perfumes and medicine. It was only found, could only be made from a root that grows in Nepal. Therefore, it was very rare, very difficult to obtain, and very, very expensive. It was encased in alabaster, which itself is beautiful and expensive. And in verse 5, Mark tells us that it was worth 300 denarii, which is a year's wages for a working man. He's not saying it was worth what a working man might hope to save in one year. He's saying it was worth what he could earn in a year. You ever tried to save a year's salary? <laughs> if you succeeded in doing it, how long did it take you to do it? The alabaster flask, we're told, was sealed. It was not a spray bottle, ladies, that you could take out and spritz yourself once in a while with when you're going out on a nice evening. It was meant to be opened once and used once for a very special occasion. It's quite possible that it was a family heirloom. It had belonged to her grandmother and her mother and now her handed down from generation to generation, not just because of its monetary value, but because of its personal value. Look again in verse 6. How does Jesus describe her sacrifice? Not as something useful, but as something beautiful. And he's not saying it's beautiful because it's useful. She does it just to show 
how much Jesus means to her, how beautiful he is to her. When you get the gospel, when you see Jesus' beauty in it, it will change you. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, he also wrote another song that we don't sing, which is a pity because the words are beautiful. He says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty are joined to part no more. It is our highest treasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond all measure and serve him with our all. When the most valuable thing that you possess means less to you than Christ himself, you will be changed. Your work will no longer just be a matter of getting what you want out of it. It will be an opportunity to serve. Your relationships will no longer be about what you can get out of them. There will be no more Godfather stuff in it. You remember Brando's statement in The Godfather, I'm going to do this favor for you because you ask me, but one day I'm going to ask a favor from you too. That will disappear. Your relationship with God will change. It will no longer be a tit for tat. I'll be good, I'll go to church, I'll read the Bible, I will pray, but I will expect blessings in return. Instead, you'll continue to do those things, but you'll do them for His sake, not for yours. And in doing them, you will understand what true freedom really is. In May, Mary Jane and I are going to celebrate our 39th wedding anniversary. Imagine we are at the Four Seasons downtown uh, having an anniversary lunch, and after it's over with, I turn to her and say, you know, we should have taken this money and given it to the poor. <laughs> or, you know, uh, we go to a concert. She's the one that always buys the tickets, right? And at the end of the concert, everybody's standing up and applauding, and I turn to her and say, you know, we should have spent this money on new tires for the car, right? Not only would those comments be inappropriate, they'd be tragic. Like Judas wanting to sell Bernard and give it to the poor, I would be missing the point. I would be missing the beauty in the occasion. The woman here, though, isn't calculating the cost of her actions financially or socially at all. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks about her sacrifice. She doesn't care about how much it costs. She does it anyway. Do you see how free she is? Do you just a little bit envy her? Judas did not see the beauty in her sacrifice. And what does he do next? Look in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. 
He's offended by what she does, and he betrays Jesus as a result. You see the connection? Judas couldn't see the point in her sacrifice. He couldn't see the point in Jesus' sacrifice either. And the two are quite similar in lots of ways. They're both beautiful. They're both extravagant. They're both lavish. And to him, they were both pointless. The difference in them, obviously, is that she made her sacrifice for someone who is worthy. And Christ made his sacrifice for we who are not. He died for us, not because we are beautiful, but in order to make us beautiful. C.S. Lewis put it like this, Love may indeed love the beloved when her beauty is lost, but not because it is. Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal. Love is more sensitive than hatred itself to every blemish in the beloved. Of all powers, he forgives most, but condemns least. He is pleased with little, but demands all. In a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's table to celebrate Jesus' sacrifice for us once again. But before we do, let's pray. Dear Lord, we bow before you this morning praying once again that you would melt our hearts, that you would set us free from other masters to love and serve you again. And as we gather around your table, make us see in it the beauty of his Christ and his sacrifice for us so that this may be more than just a ritual to us but a feast that gives us hope and delights us in your presence. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.